Good morning. Uh, We're going to be in Romans 10, the entire chapter. Uh, This morning, uh, if you were here with us when we first started out this morning, uh, we sang about the opening up the floodgates. You know, the Lord Lord listens and the Lord provides. So uh, in the midst of all this rain this morning, I'm glad to see you. Um, Can y'all hear me out there? Is that sometimes when you're up here and you're talking this way and all the speakers are pointed that way, you don't know if you're actually being projected. So can you hear this morning? All right, excellent. Romans 10, uh, Romans 9 was about God's sovereign choice, and Paul utilized Israel as a very public illustration of how God, uh, God's elective purposes show him rightly to be the author of our faith. In Romans 10, Paul again uses Israel as an illustration to show us a deeper principle of how we are to proceed in light of the knowledge that God is the author of our faith. Romans 10. Brothers, my heart's desire in prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does, not, does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not, never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have been disobedient and contrary people. At some point in our lives, if we have placed our faith in you, we were wandering far from you. There may be some in the room here today who are still contrary, who are still wandering far. 
I pray that your spirit will go before this, these words and will touch their heart. I pray that you will bless the preaching of your word by your spirit. For without your power, we can do nothing. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In 1514, three years before Martin Luther kicked off the Protestant Reformation by nailing the 95 Theses to the wall or the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, Nicholas Copernicus had already started a quieter revolution. It didn't start with the pomp and circumstance of Luther's very public proclamation. Instead, Copernican revolution started with a short essay circulated amongst Copernicus's closest friends. 26 years after the Protestant Reformation started, while the Roman Catholic Church was still fighting and reeling against the ever-expanding influence of the Reformation, Copernicus published his work stating that the sun, not the earth, was the center of the solar system. I'm sure Pope Pope Paul III face-palmed and said, oh boy, not another revolution. But this revolution by Copernicus was a harder sell to the general public. Why? Because the experience of the people from day to day was that they were planted firmly on an earth that did not move and that the heavens were constantly in motion. The idea that the sun was the center of the sky or the center of the solar system seemed counterintuitive to their perspective. Romans 9 is sort of the Copernican revolution of Romans. It shows that the sovereign God is the author of salvation. He's the center of all things. And Paul peels back the layers and gives us this very Copernican view of our salvation, which is God's perspective, which is God's point of view. But then he quickly transitions into Romans 10. And there, the perspective flips. You and I truly experience the sun moving across the sky. We don't sit there and say, you know, that was a very beautiful earth spin I saw last night. Do we? No, we talk about sunrises and we talk about sunsets. That is our perspective. We don't talk about the solar system perspective. Our experience of the world and of faith and of salvation comes from a very human perspective. Now, we'd be lying to ourselves if we didn't understand that there is a reality, there's a God-sized perspective that we don't quite understand. But we would also be in error if we assumed that we could see all things the way that God sees them. That I am able to know who God is sovereignly working in from day to day. That is presumption. And as we look at our responsibility in life in light of God's sovereignty, we've got to check some of our presumption that comes from this wonderful knowledge of knowing that that God is sovereign in all things. But we live in the day-to-day reality of engaging hearts with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is our responsibility in light of God's sovereignty? Well, first, we must check our presumption in regard to who can be saved. Look at verses 11 through 13. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all 
bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, early on, it is very easy for the Jews to believe that the Greeks or the Gentiles could not be included in salvation. In fact, even the early Christians had a problem with the idea that these Gentile dogs, as they called them, would somehow be welcome in the same way that Jews would be welcome at the table of the Lord. If you read through Acts, you see this struggle going on. You see it very early on in Acts 2 when you have the, the Hellenistic widows and, and, the, and the Jewish widows, the, the ones that, that were more Greek-inclined, even Jewish, Jewish widows who were more Greek-inclined versus those who were more Judaic in their cultural upbringing. There's even a tension there, but as you, as you go further into Acts, you see the struggle to believe that, that th- these nations could be included in God's plan of salvation. To the point where you see Peter sitting, having a vision of God lowering these unclean animals and him saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter saying, mm, no thanks, I'm clean. And those are unclean. And Jesus tells him, don't call anything that I have made clean, unclean. And then immediately following that, he demonstrates his power to to save the Gentiles. He pours out his spirit upon the Gentiles. And Peter is convinced that God is reaching the Gentiles. So here's Paul, the man who's called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, reminding us that what we see in Acts 2 and the pouring out of the Spirit is a fulfillment of Joel 2.42 and the prophecy about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In verse 13, he's actually quoting from Joel 2.42, which says this, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Even in that, you see the tension. Those who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. Those whom the Lord has called. And that in itself should rattle our presumption. But here, all means all. There is no ethnic distinction. Unless they argue with him by saying, but those verses really belong to Israel. Paul hits them with a triple punch. In verses 18 through 20. Look at verses 18 through 20. He quotes from the Old Testament in three places. Punch number one. He quotes from their songbook. He quotes from their familiar hymnody. From Psalm 19. As we've alluded to in the, in the singing of our uh, hymns this morning. Our singing of our songs this morning. Psalm 19 says this. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And what that is, is Paul reminding the Jews that God's intention, even in your hymns, even in your songs of praise, is to remind you that if he set the heavens to declare his glory and to speak words to all those on earth, then his message is for guess who? Not just Israel. His message is for the entirety of humanity. It's a word that is spoken 
to all the earth to assume that salvation is narrowly focused on one little group of people, you are sadly mistaken. If God has set his testimony in the skies to pour forth speech to all the earth, he intends the audience to be all people. Punch two. He quotes from the law. So he's hit them in their hymnody, and now he's going to hit them in the law. From Deuteronomy 32, 21, he quotes, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. This is a reminder that God spoke to Israel in the law and testified that he would choose people that were non-ethnic Israel and would show the works of his spirit among them to, in order to cause Israel to be appreciative of that for which they, 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 they took for granted, which is their relationship with the living God. And he did this in order to turn them away from their idols and back to worshiping him alone. And then he hits them with a third punch from Isaiah 65. So he's, quote, he's, he's hit them in their hymnody, and he's hit them in their law, and now he's going to hit them from the prophets. And he quotes from Isaiah 65 saying, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. You remember in high school or middle school when there was that person that, that you really hung out with a lot and, and you really wanted them to date you and they didn't really seem to notice you existed or took you for granted. And then you started paying attention to somebody else and that somebody else started paying attention to you and suddenly that person that you were wanting to get the attention of gets jealous and starts paying attention to you? That's not what God's talking about. And the reason that's not what God is talking about is that in that situation, it really stinks to be the person who's used to get the attention of the person that you want, right? And God does not do that to us. The Gentiles are not an afterthought. The Gentiles are not just somebody that he uses for his purpose. It's more like this. Say, your dad and you don't really have a close relationship and your dad then kind of picks up a protege who's around your age and they start hanging out and, they, and, and he really starts um, talking about this relationship and then you get jealous of that relationship and you want that relationship too. But no one's excluding the protege from that relationship either. By quoting from Isaiah 65, he's telling them that Though I'm making you jealous through this relationship, my desire is to have a relationship with the Gentiles and the Jews, equally bringing you in. That's God's sort of love. Though his love toward the Gentiles produces jealousy in the Jews, he wants to make sure that the Jews understand that he has a big tent and that he's welcoming in all people. That's the triple punch. The message of redemption in Jesus is for the whole world, for people who aren't like us, for people we think are beyond the family of God, and and that targets their presumption. Where does it target our presumption? Because at this point, you're going, you know, I know all that. 
been to Sunday school, been to church for a long time. I know all those things. But it's very easy to let insidious thoughts like this go through our head. You know, God is sovereign, and he allows some people to be born in good families and some people to be born in bad families. He allows some people to be born into dark countries and some people to be born into Christian countries. It's near impossible for me to change the mind of someone who was raised as an atheist in another religion. Why even try? I mean, would God really place them there if he wanted them to be saved? Those kind of thoughts can go through our head, and those kind of thoughts can go through our heart, and we can pretty much give up saying, you know, there are just some people that will not be saved. I mean, we know that, right? And this group of people, whoever this group of people is in our hearts, are those kind of people. There are times we have far more presumption than we should about the sort of people that God would save. And we let that affect who we share the gospel with, who we invite to church, and who we pursue. And it's easy for the person who holds to a different politic, or holds to different politics, has a different bumper sticker on their car than we do, or seems like a, a general undesirable type. It's, it's easiest for us to say, nah, they aren't the sort of people that God is calling. But the gospel should punch our presumption square in the heart. And remind us that Paul was a murdering, murder-condoning persecutor. That St. Augustine was a playboy. That's exactly what he was. And even in modern days, Chuck Colson was a hatchet man felon. Not the kind of people that you would assume that God would go after. That you would presume that God would save. But then they were all transformed by the power of the gospel. And having been transformed, they sought to preach the gospel to others like them. That they might be transformed. That's why Chuck Colson wanted to start a prison fellowship ministry. Because he knew the great need. And he knew that people weren't preaching the gospel to those in prison. Though from God's perspective, he knows his sheep. And he knows all who are his. That is not our perspective. We don't know. For us to assume that we know is presumption, and that should never prevent us from sharing the gospel with even the hardest heart. Which brings us to the second point in regard to our responsibility in light of God's sovereignty. We must check our presumption in regard to how people are saved. Look at verses one through four. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be, may be saved. Speaking of, of Israel. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For the Jews, their presumption was that their righteousness was enough to save them. Their hope was in the law when it actually says Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the purpose of the law. The whole reason the law is there is to direct you to Jesus, to a a personal relationship with the author and perfecter of our faith. To the God-man who hung on the cross and said it is finished, but to the Jews, that was foolishness. They preferred their own righteousness, thank you very much. They had great zeal but little knowledge, And though they were fans of God, they were not followers. 
our righteousness before God is complete. It is finished. And that is the point that Paul makes in verses 5 through 7. We cannot add anything to what Christ has done. We cannot make ourselves attracted to God enough for him to save us. It just doesn't work that way. But most of us here would say, that's not my issue. I would never presume my righteousness would save me or anyone else for that matter. Glory be to Jesus. And that's wonderful. And I wouldn't expect any less, but presumption and salvation can cut all sorts of ways. There's another sort of presumption that we can fall into when we presume upon God's perspective that is not ours. We cannot see what he does not allow us to see. And it might look like this type of conversation in the church. You know, my kids grew up in church and they knew all sorts of things about it. I'm pretty sure they're believers. But have they confessed with their mouths? Well, not really. I mean, they, they were in loads of Christmas plays and they memorized a lot of scripture. But is that their own personal confession or not? You know, I, I don't know. Or it could look like this. You know, I said a prayer when I was eight and I was baptized. How's that worked out in your life since then? What do you mean? I mean, how has that profession changed the way that you live? I don't know. So would you say that you've had a change of heart? (laughs) I'm not even sure what you mean by that, but I asked Jesus to save me, and he and I are good. Though cultural Christianity is rapidly fading in the Western world, it's still present. You can hear it in typically in country music songs. Seriously, the the God there, I want you to listen to the God that is portrayed there. The God portrayed in country music is not necessarily the God that we serve, the God that we know in the Bible. He's more of a cultural God. I do my thing, God does his, and we're good. Why? Because mama said so. Mama took me to church every Sunday. Good. I said some words. Good. But I'm still out carousing. Amen. That's not the God we serve. The God we serve takes hold of a heart and transforms that heart and transforms a life. It cannot be if I know about him, I'm good, because even the demons know who he is and shudder. But they're not saved by that knowledge because they've never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, and they won't. If my kids know about him, they're good. If I prayed a prayer at some point, though I didn't experience any real heart change, I'm good because God and I have a deal. The only deal is Jesus. And if you have trusted in Jesus, your heart is transformed by his power through the Holy Spirit. It isn't enough. And verses 8 through 10 dispel any presumption of how we are saved. Verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Heart change will lead to public profession. If a public profession doesn't flow from a changed heart, then it is not salvation, it's presumption. 
Our faith must be our own. It must come from our own heart. My parents' faith may have set me apart, but it did not save me. Salvation requires a changed heart and us confessing our faith. Finally, as we look at God's sovereignty and our responsibility, we must check our presumption in regard to the means of salvation. Now, so far, you're probably wondering, where did the Presbyterian go? He sounds an awful lot like a Baptist this morning. Well, that's just the stark difference between Romans 9 and Romans 10. And I just want to say what the Word of God says. I did go to a Presbyterian seminary, and we're not as closed off as you think we are. I remember in one class, a professor was talking to us about the importance of reaching out to others. Uh, I believe it was a class on worship. And he shared with us about a church in England that he knew filled with hyper-Calvinists. And they were, to such an extent that they didn't want to mess with what God was doing, their building set off the beaten path. And when they met for public worship, they didn't tell anybody they were meeting for public worship. They didn't publish the name of their church. In fact, when they went to park their cars, they made sure they did so randomly. So it didn't look like there was a church meeting going on there. So if anybody showed up, they would know that God's hand was behind it because they couldn't have known any other way than God revealing it to them directly. And we all laughed, but he said, brothers, there are people who believe this. And there is no doubt that God has shaped and directed and guided us and is sovereign over all things. Does God need other does God need people in order for us to be saved? No. He doesn't. He doesn't need man. He chooses to use us. He he is designed and ordained that under normal circumstances that salvation will come through preaching of the word through sharing of the gospel. That is his sovereign choice. And he chooses to use people to spread that message of the gospel to others. Look at verses 14 through 17. It hits a square in our presumption. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, the Lord who has believed what he has heard from, uh, Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The point is that God in his sovereignty chooses to use us for the purpose of preaching and sharing the gospel with those around us. To share the good news with others. Do you remember when you were a kid and your mom or your dad was doing something? Maybe your, your dad was fixing the car or your mom was baking or maybe you grew up in a house where your mom was fixing a car and your dad was baking. Either way. And they invited you to take part in what they were doing. Now, here you are, a child with absolutely no understanding of how an automobile works or how the baking process goes, but you've been invited into that process. And at the end, though, your feeble abilities and your fumbled fingers are working on that thing with them. You've been invited to that process and the results were 
or your parents working alongside you for a purpose. And in being invited into that process, you were blessed by it. Because you saw the results and you said, look what's possible. God does the same thing with us. And we miss the blessing when we don't join him in the purpose of evangelism and sharing with others. In being invited into that process, there is never a point that our words or our actions, apart from the Holy Spirit, are going to do anything to save someone. But when God uses us as vessels, when God utilizes us and empowers us by by his Holy Spirit, everything changes. Hearts can be changed. And to see that on the front lines, especially through somebody you've said, gosh, I don't know that they would ever want to hear the gospel. And suddenly, through a conversation, something changes. And you say, wow. Look at the power of God to change a heart. And you receive a blessing from that. And you see that you've become a meaningful part of what God is trying to do in and through his church. But we don't just take part by preaching. Look back at verse 1. Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul says it's not only his desire, but his prayer. Another assumption is that since God is sovereign and knows all things, is going to cause all things to come to pass, then he, my prayers are useless. I can't tell you how many times I've had that, that question asked to me by students. Well, why should I pray? Because for the same reason you should evangelize, God has called you in, as a means. He's chosen you as a means, and your prayers mean something, and your prayers are effectual. They're effective. Why? Because he needs them? No, because he's ordained them. If you look in Revelation chapter 8, you see that the prayers of the saints have ascended like incense before the Lord. He sees them. He hears them. They're powerful. Don't ever give up praying in any respect for anyone whose heart may be hard in your perspective. Because in God's perspective, if he can remove a stone and walk away from the tomb after three days, he can remove the stone from a heart. And he uses our prayers. And he's he's used the prayers of many saints in your own lives. I think you can testify to the fact that someone was praying for you to the point where you came to faith. And their prayers are effective. Don't give up on prayer. Paul never stopped praying for the people that he loved, and neither should we. Paul never stopped praying for the nation that he loved, and neither should we. He continued to pray that they may be revived. We should continue to pray that our nation should be revived. That hearts would be transformed by the gospel. In conclusion, as we have been talking about presumption this morning, let me end with Romans 10.21 which is also a quote from Isaiah 62.2. All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. In this verse, God exhibits his incredible patience as he opens his hands to the disobedient and contrary. That is his nature. He's done that to, for many of us. 
But if you've never believed in your heart or confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, I would invite you after the service, if you want to talk about that, I am more than welcome to talk to you about that. And I will be available after the service. But if you have never at any point grasped the hands that are reaching out to you, Paul tells us that the same hands that are reaching out to the Israelites are the same hands that are reaching out for you. And if you're a believer, you are a part of reaching out hands to a people that have wandered away from the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to never presume to never presume on who you want to save, to never presume on how you save, and never take for granted that we are means that you have called for the purpose of seeing people around us changed by the gospel. We cannot do that on our own. Romans 9 is the reminder that Romans 10 needs to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we ask you to empower us according to that end. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.